If you've been with us the past, um, for the past few, um, well, this year, if you've been with us in 2023, we've been taking a journey through the biblical narrative, haven't we? And we've been journeying our way down through um, from the very beginning, and we've recently been in the kings of ancient Israel. So if, you've, if that interests you, if any of this biblical journey and this narrative interests you, you can go to our website and find the audio and video links there to catch up. But we left off in, in a part of King David's, oh, he was just becoming king, David's life. Uh, we finished last week the first, if, if, if David was a, a Netflix series, we finished season one last week. He was a fugitive running for his life, and it ends with um, David, um, you know, rescuing his family from being captured by some Amalekites, and then King Saul at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines win, and uh, King Saul and some of his sons died in battle, and David doesn't know it yet. We ended that, that period, and we're entering a, a new era, a new season of David's life starting today. And um, so I'm looking forward to getting into the story. Again, you can find the, the backstory in your scriptures or even uh, presented here in our messages the past few weeks online. But really quickly, I want to say um, that we are going to cover this next section or this next season of David's life rather quickly. We spent several weeks on the first chunk of his life, the fugitive years. This next season, if you want to call it that, we're going to spend two Sundays covering a lot of ground. So I'm going to throw the kitchen sink at you today. So just letting you know that, because otherwise, here's why. If I don't, we will be talking about David in 2024 still. There's that much written about him. And it's all interesting. So I'm going to cover a lot of ground. Be, bear with me today as we jump into the message. And then we'll, at the end of the time, we're going to apply it to our lives today. But let me get through some narrative as we continue our progress. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 says, After the death of King Saul... David returned from his victory over the Amalekites, and he spent two days in Ziklag. That's the town that he was staying in in the Philistines' land while he was a fugitive and in exile. He returns there with his family, missed the war with Israel and the Philistines. On the third day, on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes. He put a dirt on his head and to show that he was in Morning. So when someone walks up to you in that culture, you know, torn clothes, dirt on their head, it's bad news. And he fell to the ground before David in deep respect. So he knows who David is. He knows who he's coming to. I mean, David was pretty famous, right? Uh, loved in Israel until he was a uh, fugitive. And then even while he was in exile, the nation knew about him. And this man came all the way to where he was with a message. It says that in verse 3, David asked him, where have you come from? Well, I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. Well, what happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. And the man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Well, that's the king. And that's David's best friend, by the way, Jonathan. That's not good news. And so, David first wants to verify, how do you know, how do I know that you're telling me the truth? Like, that's a pretty big, it's a pretty big uh, truth bomb there, so how do I know it's true? And the man proceeds to tell David a story that we know is, is fictitious. 
Because if you were with us last week when Saul died, we saw that the archers of the Philistines had drawn close enough to, to Saul to wound him with their arrows, and he was dying. And so he had turned to his armor bearer and said to his armor bearer, put me out of my misery because if I die, if I'm still alive when the Philistines get up here, they're probably going to torture me and I don't want to, to suffer at their hands, so just finish me off. And his armor bearer would not do that because he was the king. So Saul took his own sword, fell on it, killed himself. And that's when the armor bearer, seeing Saul dead, said, wow, I'm doing the same. I'm going to die with my king. And he killed himself as well. That's what we know happened. But David's meeting with this guy showing up, and this guy's got a different version. He says, oh, yeah, well, I was walking through, and, uh, you know, it, the battle ended that night. People would often go back to their camps for the night unless the battle was particularly intense and they would fight all night. Usually you'd regroup. And so the king had died. Everyone had retreated. And this man, before the Philistines got to the bodies to pick through them and find the king, this man says, I found the king laying there. And he was mortally wounded. He was still alive. And he asked me to put him out of his misery. Similar, but it's not what happened. He says, and I, I heard him ask me to put him out of his misery, and so I went ahead and I killed him the rest of the way. And he says, David, here I am. I have his crown and I have his, his armband as proof that he's dead and that, that's what happened. And so David, as soon as he sees this and realizes that Saul and everyone indeed is dead, David began to jump up and down for joy. He began to high-five his men and say, my enemy's gone! He's gone! No, you didn't know? That's not what happened, is it? Um, he did not do that. David, it says, and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. Why? I mean... Okay, Jonathan, that was David's friend. That makes sense. You're crying for Jonathan. It says, they mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul. For Saul? Yeah, for Saul and his son, Jonathan. And for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Now, here's the, here's the thing that you need to think about. In so many ways, this terrible battle was a way back for David. David now has a chance to go home. He's been in exile. We saw this last week. He was years in the Philistine country living in Ziklag. Years. And now he has a chance to go home. Because the person who's been trying to kill him is finally dead. And yes, it's been a bad circumstance, but it's his ticket to go home. His parents have been in exile. He hid them in a different country. He could go get them and see them again and bring them back to their home and be there with them. And this is such a, a good thing for David. But here's the thing. Though it was good for David in many ways, it was not good for everyone else in Israel because the king was dead and his friend was dead and people lost their fathers and their brothers and their husbands and their sons in battle. And David said, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, good for me when it's so bad for all of you. And I don't want you to miss that because he, he you know, it's, you ever been around people in our modern context, a little less bloody, playing sports? You ever see a basketball player who, he's, you know, he's, a, he's a tremendous athlete and he sets a high score on the team. He sets a high score in one game and, he's, and it's his personal record, but the team loses. After the game, they ask him, hey man, you set a personal record, how do you feel? And, he, and he'll, he'll likely say, terrible, we lost. Now if he says, oh yeah man, I'm awesome, I'm great, and he's happy, well you probably figure out why they're losing right there. But, but most likely, he's going to be like, if he's any kind of a team player, he's like, this is, I don't matter that I set a personal record. We lost. And David is sitting there saying, 
this is really good for my future, but this is really bad for a lot of other people. And it's not just about what's good for me. It's about what's good for everyone. We're going to come back to that before we finish today. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, where are you from? And he replied, I'm a foreigner, an Amalekite who lives in your land. This is probably a first bad move right here. Because David just had a whole run-in with the Amalekites, kidnapped his wife, wives and all their families. And now this guy is an Amalekite. You know, that probably wasn't a good start here. And David looks at him and says, why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one? And right then, that guy had to know he was in trouble. David is like, listen, I had chances to kill Saul more than once. And I could have even defended my actions in killing him because after all, he was trying to kill me. It's basically, though he was helpless at the time, it was basically self-defense if I would have killed him. And, and I'm at least an Israelite. And by the way, I'm an anointed king of Israel. I'm the future that God's intended. So I could have killed him, but I would not do that. Why then did you think it was in your power, according to your story, to kill him? I wonder if the guy wants to backpedal now. Oh, I was lying. I didn't really do that. But you know, that boat has sailed. And David said to one of his men, kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and he killed him. And David said, you have condemned yourself for you yourself confess that you killed the Lord's anointed one. Anointed one? David, he was your enemy. He was, a, he was supposed to lose the kingdom. Why are you so upset about his honor and what people do to him? I mean, did you a favor? Yeah, but you killed the Lord's anointed one. God put him there. God put him in that position, whether I, it's convenient for me or not. The end. Well, then Saul, David then turns around and he writes a song. He writes a song for Saul and a song for Jonathan. And he would teach everyone this song. Back in, when he go back to Judah, he would say, we're all going to learn this song. We're going to honor these men. I understand Jonathan, but why Saul? But David said he was our king. Well, David prays about it in verse, chapter 2. In verse 2, it says, David and his wives... And his men and their families, they all moved to Judah, and they settled in the villages near Hebron. Now, I'm going to give you a quick ge geography uh, thought here. And I should have put this on the screen, but I'm just going to have to verbalize it. And I know some of you don't care about the geography, perhaps. Maybe this is not an interesting detail for you. But for some of us, you like to picture these things. So picture the land of Israel as being, you know, uh, taller north and south than it was wide east and west. Okay, and in, in the setting of Israel at the spot, the southern end of this body of land that's called the land of Israel, the southern part of it is the tribe of Judah. There was 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah is the biggest tribe. They had been blessed ages ago by Jacob, as we read, and um, they've just prospered. And there's this big tribe at the south, and then north of them is most of the other tribes. Simeon was kind of down mixed in there. There was a couple of tribes on the other side of the Jordan River. But most of the tribes of Israel were north of Judah. Judah was on the south end of this, this whole thing. Now, I want you to picture that. It's, a very, it's almost half the, the whole kingdom, really. Judah's huge. But um, in between Judah and the rest of Israel is the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you could get around Benjamin and still stay in the confines of Israel, but right in the center of it all was Benjamin, which is where King Saul, the first king, had come from very centrally located place to get your first king. And Benjamin had been decimated back in their Civil War days, back in the book of Judges. But they had been rebuilding, and, and God brought the first king from Benjamin. And, and so 
uh, David is, is going back home, not to Israel, but to specifically to his tribe. David was from Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. And he returns to Judah, but he doesn't go home to Bethlehem. He goes to a central town within the tribe, a central part of Judah called the town of Hebron. Some people call it Hebron. doesn't matter either way. It's something to, to fight about. But Hebron, he goes back there and um, settles down. And it says, the men of Judah, they came to David and they anointed him to be king over the people of Judah. Not the whole nation yet, but Judah's like, look, you're supposed to be the new king of the nation. Let's start right now. You're the king of Judah. And David gets busy trying to pull everything together. The first thing he does is he reaches out to the men who we saw last week had went and rescued King Saul's body when it was taken and nailed to the wall of one of the Philistine cities in dishonor. They had rescued him and his son's bodies and they gave him a proper, honest burial. And David reaches out to them and says, thank you. Why would David thank people for honoring the body of his political rival? You know, seriously, like, why did he care? But David says, thank you. You did the right thing. That was our king. That was your king. And I respect that. And I'm going to bless you for what you did for King Saul. And then he says to the men, let's get the nation together. Let's form a, a nation now and let's pull everyone together and move forward. And it should work out. It should be beautiful. But there's a problem. His name is Abner. Remember Abner? Abner was the man. Does anyone remember who Abner is in the story? Anybody want to? Speak out on this part. Yes. Yes, ma'am. He was the military commander of Saul's army. Saul has um, his forces. David had interacted with Abner before uh, in, in one particular chance we had a chance to kill Saul. But Abner was, was a very powerful commander of this army. And so when the battle went down where Saul died, and again, as nighttime fell and people were running away and retreating, though King Saul died, Abner survived the battle. He comes back, to, because Israel retreats, he comes back to the land of Israel, and he goes right to Benjamin, and he's like, uh-uh, no David coming this way. He goes back to Benjamin's tribe, right in the center of the nation, and he finds another son of King Saul, whose name is Ishbosheth, and says, he's Saul's son, and this is the house of Saul. So we're going to put someone on the throne of Saul from the house of Saul, so his son Ishbosheth will be our new king. Well, who's Ishbosheth? Because we just saw that several of Saul's sons were in battle. They died in the war with him, Jonathan included. Ishbosheth didn't even go to the battle. He's 40 years old. Why did he not go? Was he, you know, frail? Was he just not a fighting type guy? I don't know. Was he, some people speculate he was a son of a, one of his concubines, not a main heir to the throne type son. Doesn't matter. Abner goes back and says, I want to keep my power, and I don't want the guy I've been trying to hunt with King Saul to be in charge, because that that's bad for me. So Saul's son Ishbosheth is the king to continue his throne, so say I. And Israel's like, okay. And all of a sudden, David's in a spot where once again, he's waiting He's come all the way back. And if you ever get frustrated when you're waiting for God to do something and then he finally does and then it feels like it's only part way. He's like, man, I got back to Israel and then, <laughs> really? I'm, I'm waiting for another king? I got a divided kingdom? Seven and a half years, David sets up his throne in Hebron and reigns only Judah. Seven and a half more years. That's gotta be frustrating. And the divided kingdom eventually splinters further into full-on civil war. One day, Abner 
brings forces down, brings soldiers down from the house of Saul to wage war against the house of David. And David sends one of his men to lead his forces to meet Abner in battle. And David sends a, a man to fight, to lead the fight, whose name is Joab. Now, if you don't know who Joab is, I need to take a moment to tell you because he's going to be a pretty central character for a while. Joab is one of three brothers. There's Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. These three brothers have been with David while David was a fugitive. Remember, David had 400 men. Later, he had 600 men come and join him in his, his uh, time as a fugitive. And they were helpful. They were, they were, these are strong warriors. Joab's the oldest. He's, a, he's like a leader. Abishai, well, he's, he's, a, he's a tremendous soldier. Tremendous. And then Asahel is also a tremendous soldier. Not like his brothers, but he's very, very good. Better than most people. But he's also the fast one. He was quick on his feet. And these three brothers are, are in David's group. And David sends Joab to lead the forces to go meet Abner as he brings forces down from the house of Saul for civil war. And when they, come, when they meet, a couple of silly things happen. A bunch of people die. And then they get, they get serious about the fight. And when the fight really breaks out, David's forces just, they just whip Abner's forces. And Abner and his men begin to retreat back north to the tribe of Benjamin. They begin to retreat. And, and Joab and David's men, Joab begins to chase them while they retreat. We pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 18. It says that Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, the three sons of Zerai, or however you say that one, they were among David's forces that day. And Asahel, the, the one brother, he could run like a gazelle. Okay, so that's pretty fast. He's, he's, he's just a quick guy. He could run like a gazelle, and he began chasing Abner. He pursued him relentlessly, not stopping for anything. So picture the context of what's happening. Abner and his men are retreating. David, uh, Joab's forces are chasing them. And Asahel sees the commander, Abner, running this way. Other people are scattering different directions. And he ignores everybody else, and he chases just the commander. He chases just Abner. He wants the big dog. That's who he's going for. When Abner, when Abner looked back and saw him coming, he called out, Is that you, Asahel? Yes, it is, he replied. Go and fight someone else, Abner warned. Take, one of the young, take on one of the young men. Strip him of his weapons. In other words, fight you, you're a good warrior. Go take on somebody else who's running. Leave, just stop following me. But Asahel kept right on chasing Abner. And again, a little ways down the road, Abner shouts again, get away from here. I don't want to kill you. How could I ever face your brother Joab again? He's like, listen, you're faster than me. You're going to catch me, but you don't want to catch me. It's like catching a tiger by the tail. If you catch me, I'm going to have to kill you. And if I kill you, i got to answer to your brother Joab at some point. Look, this is not a good outcome. You're going to catch me pretty quick here. Stop chasing me. Turn around because it's not good for you because you'll be dead. It's not good for me because I'll have killed you. And Joab won't be very happy about that. The problem is, you couldn't tell this young man anything. It says, but Asahel refused to turn back. This is gruesome here. So Abner thrust the butt end of his spear through Asahel's stomach. 
and the spear came out his back. I want you to picture through his back. Picture how much force that had to be. I mean, and it's brilliant, by the way, because he's getting close and he doesn't think that Abner's ready to fight because he's, you know, because he's not in that position. But Abner doesn't need to. He's good. He just takes the back end of his spear when he's not expecting it. And with such force, I can't imagine, such force that he just goes all the way through his abdomen and throughout his back. And it says that he stumbled to the ground and died there. And everyone who came by that spot stopped and stood still when they saw Asahel lying there. It was a shocking thing to see. He caught his prize. You ever catch on something you really wanted to chase and then you're like, sorry you did? That was what happened here. And it says that when Joab and Abishai, the older brothers, when Joab and Abishai found out what had happened, whew, they set out after Abner. And without reading all of it, night is falling, it's getting late, and at some point Abner calls back for a truce and Joab agrees and they go their separate ways. And Joab and the forces of David go back to Hebron and they count the casualties. Turns out that it was very lopsided, that only 19 men of David's forces died, plus their brother Asahel. But 360 men from the house of Saul died. So it was very lopsided. And so Joab and Abishai go back to Hebron and they give their brother a proper burial and they mourn his death. Well, continuing on, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, that was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those who were loyal to David. And as time passed, as time passed, David became stronger and stronger while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. Time is passing, and, and, and the, um, it's becoming obvious that David's coming out ahead as time marches on. But not just David. This is interesting. Verse 6 says, As the war between the house of Saul and the house of David went on, Abner became a powerful leader among those loyal to Saul. So I want you to picture what's going on here. David's side is getting stronger. The rest of Israel is getting weaker under Ishbosheth. But guess who's doing really well in that area? They're, they're the weaker side. But the, the most powerful, prominent man on the weaker side is Abner, the commander, who had put Ishbosheth on the throne. Ishbosheth's basically a puppet. He was just a, technically a son of Saul, so he had right to the house of Saul, according to Abner, but that wasn't God's anointing, and, and no one really respected him. But they respected Abner. And Abner became the man in that kingdom, though Ishbosheth sat on the throne. And David, in the meantime, was getting stronger and stronger with more forces behind him and more of the nation cheering him on. So, what happens is next is crazy. One day, Ishbosheth probably gets frustrated with the situation, and he turns against his own commander, who put him in, in power. Ishbosheth actually accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his father, King Saul's concubines, one of his women. He's, he's sleeping around with my dad's women. That's what he's all about. That's who he is. And Ishbosheth accuses Abner of doing that. Abner is furious. I mean, he is insulted. He's like, who do you think you are? I put you on that throne. I gave that you would even be there, and you're going to accuse me of something as dishonorable as that? I mean, Abner is mad, and he goes off on Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth just shuts his mouth. He's just, what are you going to say to an angry commander who's very popular when you just, whoops, <laughs> he just shuts his mouth. And Abner finishes his, what he's got to say, and he storms out of there in fury. Whew. 
But Abner doesn't get over it. It says in verse number 12, then Abner sent messengers to David and said, hey, doesn't the entire land belong to you? Make a solemn pact with me and I'll help turn over all of Israel to you. <laughs> if I'm David, I'm like, oh, oh, now you're admitting the land belongs to me. Where has that been the last seven and a half years you know, that I've been waiting to get the throne? Now you're gonna tell me that you know the throne belongs to me? Well, that would have been nice a long time ago. But Abner's like, I don't care. My honor has been insulted with this weak little puppet king. I've been fighting this forever, but you know what, David, it's yours. Let me make a deal with you. And David is ready. He's long ready to bring the kingdom together. So David says, all right, but I will not negotiate with you unless you bring back my wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come. Now, I want to say this because you've got to understand the context of David and Michael from what's happened before and what's going to happen down the road. This is an important storyline for the future. So, so Michael, if you remember a few weeks ago, she was one of King Saul's daughters who was crazy about David. She loved David. And through a, a plot in Saul's end to try and weaken David, he lets him marry his daughter. Through, you know, er, he had to go out and earn it. And he does, and but then, you know, as Saul pursues and tries to kill David, at one point he sends forces to, to his daughter's house to kill David in his sleep, and she helps her husband escape. She helps David escape because she loves him, and her dad's mad at her, and she's in the middle. Well, when David runs for his life after years pass by, I don't know if they both drift in their hearts or not. I mean, Michael was largely instrumental in, in marrying David in the first place. At some point, David marries two other women while he's still a fugitive, and then it says that King Saul took his daughter Michael and gave her to another man in marriage. Now, I gave you a couple of reasons why that may have happened a couple of weeks ago. But let me give you another obvious one. By taking Michael away from being David's wife, he removed David a step further from being part of his house, the house of Saul. Because David was married into it. By pulling him out of the picture and saying, she's no longer married to my daughter, she's married to this other man, He's that part of the house of Saul. So he's less, even less legitimate for the throne. I'm afraid he's going to get someday. So she's remarried. David's remarried. Everything's fine. But David is now back. And now he's like, okay, Abner, we want to bring the kingdom together after all these years. You bring back my wife, Michael, to me. And we have a deal. Now, David had no shortage of wives. Since David has come to Hebron, he's married even more women, which is a whole conversation we need to have, and we will, not this week. But hold on to that. He's got a whole bunch of wives. But he's like, I want that one! Okay, because why? Because here's, here's why. Because again, maybe in the eyes of Israel, that could have been even considered part of his legacy as a right to the throne. Who knows what people were thinking. But it says that David then sent this message to Ishbosheth, Saul's son. He says, Hey, give me my wife Michael back, for I bought her with a hundred, as a hundred Philistines. Oh, she's mine. Give her, bring her back to me, you know. So, so David's like, Bring my wife back to me. And um, Ishbosheth isn't going to say no. I mean, he's in a weaker spot on the other side of the kingdom, and his own general is turning against him right now. So Ishbosheth, it says, took Michael away from her husband, Palti, son of Laish. Now, this is his only wife. Palti and her have been married for years now. It's been like a decade or so. Uh, and they've been happily married and moving on with their lives. And he takes her from him to bring her back to David. And it says in verse 16 that Palti 
followed along behind her as far as Behirim, weeping as he went because he loved her. Because this is, to him, this is his one wife, his one little ewe lamb. And David has a whole flock of women over there that were his now. And he's so sad, no, don't take her. And as he follows behind her, he's weeping and crying to lose her. And Abner, who's bringing her back to David, says to him, go back home. So he returns brokenhearted. And Michael's brought to David. We're getting somewhere with that story that's going to be very important down the road, but just hang on to that. Abner, for today's story, comes back and he says to David, I'm going to rally support. He actually goes to Benjamin, that middle tribe between all of the divided kingdom, and he, he rallies them to get behind David. And that was a big deal because that was the tribe that belonged to Saul. Saul was from Benjamin. So he gets the most crucial tribe on David's side. He goes to meet David and says, David, let's pull this thing together. To which David throws a big feast for Abner. They eat, they celebrate over dinner. And Abner says, I'm going to now go to the northern tribes. I'm going to set up a coronation ceremony for you. And when I do, you'll be king of all Israel. So the moment of bringing the kingdom together has finally arrived. And Abner's going to go pull off the, the whole thing. And David's excited. He's clapping his hands and everyone's happy. Abner leaves. David waits for his work to be done and the kingdom's going to be united, and they're all going to live happily ever after. Right? That's how these stories have gone so far. Right? Romo. So uh, anyhow, what happens next is that while he sends Abner away, Joab, remember Joab? The oldest brother of the three in David's mighty men? Joab has been away fighting a military campaign for David because without getting into all of this, a lot of the... Uh, the the geography was really confusing. There were still enemy cities and towns and places everywhere, even within the boundaries of, quote-unquote, boundaries of Israel. So um, he would go out and, and do some conquering with his soldiers. And so he returns back to Hebron from doing his raids. And he gets home. He's all happy to be back. He's been successful. And he, he's told, he's told that Abner, the guy who killed his baby brother, not baby, but, you know, his, his younger brother, has just been there, had a meal with David, and made a deal with him and has left. And Joab's furious. He goes to David and says, what were you doing? David's like, what do you mean what am I doing? We're bringing the kingdom together. Abner's coming over. He's going to bring the whole kingdom to me. And he made a, a deal. You can't trust that guy. You can't trust him. David's like, well, this is a good thing that Joab calmed down. And Joab's, he leaves mad. And after he leaves behind David's back, he sends messengers ahead to Abner saying, hey, King David wants to see you. Come back to Hebron real quick. Come back. He's on his way to get the kingdom pulled together. Come back. David wants to talk to you first. And David didn't know anything about it. Verse number 27 says, when Abner arrived back at Hebron, Joab took him at the, aside at the gateway as if to speak with him privately. But then he stabbed Abner in the stomach and killed him in revenge for killing his brother. That's the hell. And in this moment, Joab shows something very different about his character than David's. Earlier, we saw that David had some things happen that benefited him but hurt the nation. And he didn't celebrate. He grieved because he said, what's, what's good for me is not as important as what's good for everyone. But this is the opposite of what Joab is doing. Joab is saying, I don't care if, if, if Abner's going to bring the kingdom together. I don't care if that's good for David, my king, or if that's good for the whole nation. I don't care. Because for me, I want this guy dead. 
Because he killed my brother. Well, your brother was an idiot, okay? I'm sorry. But, you know, yeah, but he killed my brother, you know, so I got to get revenge. So, so he does what he feels is best for him, even though it's not what's best for everyone else. Who cares? Because I want revenge. And he gets it. And when David hears about it, he is so upset. He publicly condemns Joab's actions in the harshest terms. And in verse number 31, David said to Joab and to all those who were with him, you tear your clothes, you put on burlap, and mourn for Abner. I ain't mourning for Abner. No, listen, we're all going to mourn for Abner. Because he was a leader amongst the most of the tribes of Israel who was revered, and we're going to mourn. So, so Joab and the men had to, had to put on the mourning apparel and attend the funeral, even though that they killed him. And they all formed a procession. It says David, King David himself walked behind the procession to the grave. And it says they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king and all the people wept at the graveside. And David writes a song. He writes a song for Abner. And he sings it and he, and he fasts all day, eats no food, and grieves de Abner's death. And this is a big move. Because in a political sense, this is a, it was sad that Abner died for David's sake because Abner was about to bring the nation together. But in another sense, is David really that attached to Abner? Can we just be real? Apart from the moment we're talking about right now, Abner has been a pain in David's neck for a long, 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 long time. And yes, he's about to help him get the kingdom together, but he's an old enemy. He's been part of the hunting of David all his fugitive years. David's lost many a sleepless night because of people like Abner. And then when he finally gets his kingdom back, supposedly, Abner's just a puppet king and keeps him away for seven and a half more years. Abner has been so harmful to David's life that even though he was about to make a truce, he's only been an enemy most of his time. But David is heartbroken about what went down, and he's weeping about the, the death of a man who was loved by the others in the nation, even though they're against me. And it's so powerful because while he's doing it, verse 37 says, so that everyone in Judah, everyone in Judah, and all of Israel understood that David was not responsible for Abner's death. They understood that that was not David's doing because they saw David genuinely bothered and upset. And this is important because if, if David would have killed Abner himself, the rest of the nation that was getting weaker might have been afraid Right? Because David's killed their guy. But they also may have rebelled at that. And it could have kept the, the rift longer. But when they all realized they lost Abner and David was not for that, well, that softened their hearts toward David and made conciliation possible. And David, King David, said to his officials, Don't you realize that a great commander has fallen today in Israel? A great commander? He's your enemy. No, no. He was a beloved commander in Israel. And even though I am the anointed king, these two sons of Zeri, Joab and Abishai, are too strong for me to control. So may the Lord repay these evil men for their evil deeds. David is saying, Joab and his brothers were great to have on his team during his wandering, during his years as a fugitive. He needed men like that. But they were pretty hard to control then. By the way, do you remember that we saw Abishai before? Abishai was the one that when David had a chance to kill King Saul, 
He's like, we're not going to kill King Saul. He's God's anointed. And Abishai's like, I'll kill him. Let me kill him. Come on, David. He's always, they're always that, that person. And so David's like, Abishai's in front of his skis. And Joab just killed Abner. And he's like, these two guys, they were helpful while I was a fugitive. But now that I'm the king, they are not good for the kingdom. They, are, they, are, they have been elevated as, along with me, and they are too much. And he's going to have to deal with that at some point, but not today in today's message. Well, we have one more story to tell. I'm giving you a lot today, I told you. And then a little application, and then we'll go home. One more story uh, to get us moved along. First, 2 Samuel 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the puppet king, when Ishbosheth heard that Abner's death at Hebron, he lost all his courage. And all Israel became paralyzed with fear. Israel was like, oh no, Abner's dead. And Ishbosheth's like, oh man, who's gonna, who's gonna support me now? So one day, verse five, one day Rechab and Bayana, the sons of Rimmon from Beeroth, they went to Ishbosheth's house around noon as he was taking his midday rest. So he was getting his nappy time that day, apparently. And it says the doorkeeper, who had been sifting wheat, became drowsy and fell asleep, so Rechab and Beana slipped past her. They went into the house and found Ishbosheth the king, sleeping on his bed. They struck and killed him there. They cut off his head. Then taking his head with them, they fled across the Jordan Valley through the night. And when they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. They're like, look, they exclaimed to the king. Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul, who tried to kill you. Today the Lord has given my lord the king revenge on Saul and his entire family. Now, how many of you are going to guess how this is going to go for them? So they're back to David and they're like, look. And what are they doing? They're, they're trying to self-preserve, right? Because they were on the weakening side of Saul's kingdom and Abner's now dead. And they're thinking once David takes power, we're all in trouble for opposing him. So they're going to switch from being in trouble to being David's best friends. And they kill Ishbosheth and say, here's his head. You like that, don't you? They're like, here he goes. We killed your enemy because Saul was mean to you and God got him. And now his son should have, aren't you happy? But David said to Rechab and Beana, the Lord who saves me from all my enemies is my witness. Now this is interesting. David is saying, it's the Lord who saves me from my enemies. I've never taken matters into my own hands. I've left it with God. He's the, I don't need you to do my dirty work. I didn't do my own dirty work. The Lord saves me from my enemies. And he's my witness. David continues, he says, um, someone once told me that Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news by the way he claimed he did it. But I seized him and I killed him at Ziklag. That's the reward I gave him for his news. How much more should I reward evil men like you? How much more should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Like Ishbosheth, well, sure he shouldn't have been king, but you know what did he do? He just he was just growing up, living his life, and as a king's son, until someone came along and says, "You're the your dad's, you're the new king." He was, you know, yeah, I don't agree with him. I don't think he should have been there, and we were enemies. But what did he do? You went into his house and killed him in his bed. Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? 
<laughs> Those guys are like, can we rewind? It's too late. So David ordered his young men to kill them, and they did. This is gross here. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies beside the pool in Hebron. Okay, now, I imagine that was a deterrent from such future reactions. I imagine that would be effective. I also am trying to picture the pool of Hebron. I don't know. Was it like a pool like with the fountains or was it like a swimming pool, you know? Like, mommy, mommy, look at those guys. Come on, kids, let's go. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. I can't picture it. But anyhow, this would be a real statement of, uh, of how David feels about someone doing something like they did. And then it says this. Then they took Ishbosheth's head, that's all they had, his body's up north, they buried him up north, took his head and they buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. And David honors Ishbosheth, his enemy, the way he honored Abner, his enemy, and the way he honored Saul, his enemy, when Saul was killed in battle. Because he knew it was the right thing to do. Now, we're done with our story today. There was a lot of, I could have a lot, I skipped a lot. We skipped, we looked at some high points over a period of about seven and a half plus years. And, and so we're going to continue the journey next week. We'll finish up this season of David's life next week. But before we get into what happens next, I just want to take today and say that what we can learn as a church, or as people who, who read these fascinating stories, at least to me they're fascinating, is, um, is how David treated his political adversaries. And I think that's relevant. I think that's relevant to us because we also know what it's like to be caught up in political adversity and opinions. In fact, if you've been around Lighthouse long enough, you'll know something about, uh, uh, about me. But about the last 10 years, one of the things we've noticed is our, 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 the, the church in the West in general has gotten off, its, uh, off course in being so politicized and brought into very carnal, petty things in, in, in the political world. And we've lost our testimony. We've lost our, we've lost our testimony and so as I look at how David handled his political enemies, I think about how Christians today who are Jesus followers, who were taught by Jesus himself, who walked in our shoes 2,000 years. By the way, Jesus came 1,000 years after David, showed us what it looks like to follow him and live in this world and be about the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. He gave instructions that the apostles after him taught the people about how to honor authority and how to behave in, in, in culture while spreading the good news and living for Jesus. And David's a thousand years before any of that, and he is an exemplary person in this day's story and how he handles things that frustrated him politically. And I'm thinking to myself, we have the example of Jesus himself in the writings of the Christian scriptures, and yet we, to this day, struggle. The church struggles sometimes anymore with knowing how to treat people who we oppose or who oppose us politically. And so David's looking, I'm not going to make David to be perfect. We're going to about to see. If, you're not, if you don't know this yet, watch out. David's about to go off the rails in a couple ways, okay? He's not going to be perfect. But so far he's been remarkable. And in today's story, he was really remarkable. And I think that we should take a lesson from him that's backed up by Jesus and by our New Testament writings. So I'll give you three lessons from David real fast and we'll go home. The first one is this, that David honored the office no matter the occupant. That over and over again he said, he's the Lord's anointed. That David believed that though he was anointed to be king one day, if that man's the king right now, then that must be God's will because God is in control. I wish Christians sometimes believed that. 
whether whatever your views lie in local, statewide, federal, or worldwide things, I wish that we would always look at things and say, I believe that God is in control and God is sovereign, and I'm going to apply it to my real-world situation instead of pretending like it's not that way. David honored the office, no matter the occupant. He's like, Saul, trying to cut and kill me, but I'm going to mourn his death. I'm going to write a song. We're going to honor him in, in, in uh, Judah, even though he, who he was. The guy who claimed to kill him, I'm going to deal with him because he was the king. But he was your enemy. He was the king. He does this to Abner when Abner's killed. He does this to Ishbosheth when Ishbosheth's killed. And he says, because, listen, they're the Lord's anointed. I, I, you know what I think makes me sad? And, I, and this is, I'm, I want to brag on our church. Just, can I brag on you? You probably don't want me to do that. I won't brag on you. No, let me brag on you. Our church is so good at this. And I think we've gotten this way over the years. We're not a political church. But all, I, don't mean, I, mean, I don't mean it to be politics, like presidential government races. I, don't, I do mean that. But I mean all the hot button issues that get culture all worked up and we're against that, we're for this, you know, and this is the issue, whether it's, you know, theories about how things are, all the kind of stuff that people get yelling at in social media and fighting over. And we're really good as a church of being above that. I've, I've noticed for the most part, we're just like, we're for our community. We serve people and we love and we, our church is full of people who are very diverse in our political views. Even in our leadership team, we're very diverse in our political views because that's not what matters to us. We are for, the, the, the gospel is the center. That's the main thing. And the main thing is to get the main thing, the main thing. And we've done a good job of that here. So I'm not poking at us, but I'm reminding us to stay on top of our game here. Because as a larger topic, Christians everywhere have gotten very bad at honoring the offices around them, no matter the occupant. Whether it's on a national, state, or local levels, we don't do this very well. But Jesus taught us to. And Romans, Paul taught us to. And David modeled it a thousand years earlier than Jesus. And some of us are like, well, Arlen, I agree with you. We shouldn't be that way. But, but we know people. Maybe some of us have been people who we mock and we insult and we denigrate people we disagree with. We, we mock them politically. We mock their leadership. We insult them and we, we lie or exaggerate because it's about our team winning. It's a zero-sum game. And so we can exaggerate, cheat, lie, whatever it takes. And scorn and be cruel because we're right but that's not what David did in any of our stories today. He honored the office no matter the occupant. But David is something else that I want us to notice today. And that is that David refused to honor those who dishonored others. That when the man came and said, I took care of Saul, he's like, oh, that was wrong. What he did to Abner was wrong. I don't care if it was convenient for me. I mean, I didn't have to kill him, so you did it for me, so thank you. He said, no, you dishonored others. You did, what did you do to Ishbosheth? That was wrong. Yes, he got, you got him out of my way, but that's not right. I refuse to honor those who honor others. I feel like that's another lesson that we can learn today because there's a whole bunch of us running around and we would say, yes, Arlen, I agree that we should not uh, be disrespectful or dishonor people, but a lot of folks do, but I don't behave that way. But some of us, we, we enjoy it when others do it for us. We like it when our favorite people rip apart and, and trash people that we think are wrong or in our way of our agendas or our wishes for how things should be. And we like that. Like, I wouldn't say, but I'm kind of glad they did. And so we exalt them as influencers. We support them as politicians or leaders because they did the ugly thing. They said the ugly thing. They did the dirty work. And I wouldn't do it, but I like it when they do it. <laughs> 
And, and it's like, really? If it's wrong for me to dishonor people, it shouldn't be right for me to be for and support the prosperity and influence of people who do the same. And David said, I'm not, I refuse. I refuse to honor those who dishonor others. Even though the people that they dishonored was a favor to my future, it's wrong, and that's not how we do things. That's not how we do things in this kingdom. And number three, David never forgot about the humanity of his enemies. This is big. So easy in our culture to make everything an issue. I know everything pushes our buttons and everything's an issue and we gotta speak about the issues. The problem I see, look, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm picking on, I'm talking to Jesus people here. As long as the world's been turning, there are people who are fighting for power and people who are willing to fight dirty and people who are willing to be wrong, people who are willing to be angry, people who, but, but we're supposed to be followers of Christ. That's supposed to look different. And let me just put the jelly on the bottom shelf. When you get worked up about all the issues of culture and you're ranting and raving about the issues, you ever think about who is on the other side of that issue that's a person that gets trampled underneath our issue? But who cares? Because I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about the cause. There's people. And you know, every people, people that you don't agree with, they, they have goals like you. They, they, look, they look at Ishbosheth and says, he just was the king's son and he, was, he deserved better than that. People out there who we should be praying for, who are fathers and husbands and people who've got a dream of their own and we just dismiss them. Even, even amongst ourselves sometimes, we, we, whether it's political or religious divisions, I don't agree with these people about this or that. Do you ever stop and think to just get to know people who see the world differently than you do? Because what we do is like, I don't know how a person could be that way. I don't understand how anyone can see things this way. Well, that's the me problem. I just said it. I don't understand. I don't understand. So here's the thing. What do I not understand? Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay with my view, but at least I'll understand where someone's coming from and have respect for people instead of dehumanizing people into a label or a category where you can dehumanize and mistreat them easier. And we as Jesus followers should be so good because we have the whole Christian writings to teach us this. And here's David a thousand years before Jesus, and he's not going to be perfect. But in this particular story, he does a great job of something that we ought to do a great job of because we know what we're about. And we know who we serve and who we follow. Because as we see, what's best for people is what's best. Are you with me? What's best for people is what's best, even if it's not what's best for me. And David showed this early on, and Joab did not. But when we can sit there and say, it doesn't matter what's best for me. See, I, I tend to, he, fleshly speaking, you and I, we tend to do what's best for us, ourselves, for me. Do you know why? Because I am the center of my universe. By the way, I want to just explain something how human nature works. If someone is nice to everyone else in the world, but they're mean to me, they're a jerk. They could be Mother Teresa and bless the whole world. But if they're mean to me, they're a jerk. And if someone is a jerk to everyone in the world but nice to me, they're wonderful. Because I'm the center of my universe. And if it's best for me, that's what I'm all about. But, but to move into a space in your life where you say what's best for everyone, what's best for people is what's best, even if it doesn't serve me the best. That's, that's the Christ-honoring way. That's the Christ-modeled way. So let's do likewise. As we move on from the story and get into the next week, let's, let's, let's honor the office, no matter the occupant. Let's refuse to honor 
Those who dishonor others. And let's never forget about the humanity of people that we consider to be our opponents or even our enemies. We'll continue our story next week.